This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with the founder of Tova Training and Tova Academy, Todd Bean. He discusses his time with Johan Cruyff and the learnings he took in terms of football methodology, why the work he does at Tova challenges conventional wisdom and how this could develop youth development, as well as some of the work he completes in his academy and how it differs from normalised curriculums. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you share it with as many people as possible as we continue to grow. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Todd, really appreciate you giving up um, some of your early Thursday morning with me. Um, how are you and the family? Are you all safe and well? Yeah, thanks, Michael. It's good to be with you this morning or this afternoon, your time. Yeah, we're in California, the mountains of California. And while I think half of California is having trouble with wildfires, uh, our family is safe and well. So thanks for asking. Perfect. Good. Well, I think first of all, as I said, really appreciative of you giving up a bit of time. I think I reached out to you just because I'd seen some of your prompts and questions via social media, which I think challenge maybe some conventional thinking or just challenge individuals to think about what they're delivering to, to kids and stuff. So for people that maybe don't know your work or don't know your background and your history, do you want to give us kind of a, a flyby summary of what you do and how you've got to this point? Yeah, the brief version, and I'm in my 50s now, the brief version is I grew up in the United States playing multi-sports and got into, uh, you know, playing at the professional level, coaching, teaching, education, all wrapped into wrapped into one throughout the years. Um, fast forward to, to early 2000s, and I moved into Barcelona to work with uh, Johan Cruyff on a project that we created called the Cruyff Institute for Sports Management. Fast forward again in 2010, we were starting to work with uh, professional clubs and consulting, um, building out youth academies at places like Mamelodi Sundowns in South Africa. Obviously, Johan himself was advising uh, Football Club Barcelona. We did a project back at his maternal club at Ajax. And um, before his passing, um, I just thought it would be a, a really ambitious agenda to create what we call Tovo, Total Football in Dutch to honor him and to kind of take morsels of wisdom I learned in working with him for 14 years and put it into a project that we run in Barcelona, uh, academy for foreign players to come in and train, like a language study abroad program, but uh, a football study language program, uh, and also create a methodology that was founded not necessarily for elite clubs like Barcelona or Ajax, because they have such a wealth of resources but really to distill that wisdom and to add the pedagogical science behind it and to share that with coaches worldwide. And we do that now through Tobo Institute, where we have uh, have had a chance to work with maybe close to 2,000 coaches worldwide in, in the methodology that that, that can promote our, our, our brand, our, our flavor of football, if you will. So first of all, I mean, some great experiences there. And obviously, like you mentioned, with, with Johan, well-known, well-renowned for, for the brand of football that he he played and has passed down to everyone else. So if we look at the Tover Institute, what would you say is the main brand or selling point of, of, of the um, club or company or institute or whatever you want to call it? And how do you disperse this to the people that work with you? Yeah, I think my agenda was to rethink and redesign talent development 
uh, for the benefit of, of young footballers. Um, I really had no idea that it would take root uh, worldwide. We have such interest. So it's kind of grown organically. But I had a selfish mission. I'm from the United States originally. So I had a selfish mission of trying to rethink and redesign uh, talent development in the United States. Um, we were really, I think, stuck and still are in a really traditional paradigm. So that agenda was to get the wheels turning and to prompt my colleagues here in the United States uh, to examine some of those assumptions and to think about novel ways to engage players in a dynamic program to make, I think, them think more than we traditionally asked them to do in trainings and to build a coaching core that would maybe, and we're getting there, maybe start to push the national agenda of how we develop young boys and girls in the game of soccer. I just had no idea that we would reach to Christchurch in Australia, England, Ireland, and other places. It's just organic growth. And I think there's a great interest from coaches to, to, to examine our craft. So Tovo Institute is our way to reach out to coaches. They can come on, take courses, we do webinars. Uh, we do con some consultancy for clubs worldwide. And it's really engaging people who are open-minded to think, can we push our craft further to help young players maximize their potential? So it was really agenda to maximize children's potential by rethinking and redesigning talent development in that way. So when, when you're looking back, when you obviously come from the US, where you'd seen the traditional practice there, and you've come across to, to Europe, in particular Spain and Holland and whatnot, what were the major differences you saw between the actual work that was taking place? I think I saw a discrepancy between, um, you know, research on pedagogical science about skill acquisition and learning and what we've learned so much in the last 15 years about the brain, about development, about physical maturity, et cetera. I saw this amazing gap between the way that coaches were approaching learning on the pitch as opposed to modern research about how children actually learn. And as a past educator, that started to unnerve me a little bit, right? We don't want to do anything that isn't maximizing the potential of children. So remember, most football coaches end up coaching the way that they were coached by somebody who coached the way they were coached. So you can see how this builds onto itself. I, I really found that we were still engaging 1980s practices in football, not just the United States, but even in uh, places like Holland or England, where my son went off to train. Um, I, I saw this great discrepancy. I felt like we were trapped in a 1980s, 90s paradigm, but we're pushing ourselves in the 2020s. So that motivated me to kind of, uh, you know, drive that agenda, engage with anybody who would listen and start to build this momentum to to rethink our approach on the pitch. And was that in terms of coach behavior or was that in terms of technical detail or session design? What what did that actually encompass with those discrepancies? Yeah, and this is easy to say, uh, Michael, but maybe more difficult to really understand the depth at which this permeates global soccer development. Um, I really think we were working off and still are in many parts of the world and in many clubs, a, a, a false paradigm. And that's a, that's a paradigm that suggests that the game is the sum of its technical parts. And I'll just say, you know, that's a technical-centric paradigm. So if we teach our children moves, if we shuttle the ball between our feet, if we do drill after drill on technical uh, skill as it's defined that way, that a player will be able to 
in real time, in context, in a weekend match, perform at their best. That paradigm is flawed for so many reasons. Uh, and when you research deeper into skill acquisition, into the, the game itself in terms of contextual relationships and managing space and the decisions that children need to make or young players need to make in real time, that paradigm falls apart pretty quickly. But it doesn't fall apart in clubs because it is the dominant paradigm and many coaches are comfortable with it. So I think it's more familiarity and comfort. And as coaches, we're human beings. We don't really enjoy change that much. Uh, it, 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 it undermines our security. It questions our abilities. It maybe puts us on the spot if we look at it that way. I don't. I look at it as an opportunity. But I've noticed as I travel around, when you ask someone to change or even consider changing, what's interpreted is, well, what I've been doing here at Southampton isn't good enough or what I've been doing in here in Connecticut isn't good enough. And that's not really what change is about. But we're vulnerable psychological beings, and so oftentimes it's interpreted that way. So I found that the most innovative coaches just have a sense of self and recognize that the game has to evolve, and by extension, our approach to talent development has to evolve. So we need to shift the paradigm, I think, from this traditional technical-centric paradigm into one that is more holistic and recognizes that it is cognition, competence, and character that we need to nurture and not just kicking a ball. And that's easy to say, but it, it, it's a platform. It's the same well-intended platform. We want our kids to mature and to, and to learn and to enjoy the game. But one platform goes from the station completely different direction than the platform that I'm trying, the paradigm I'm trying to suggest would be more fruitful, which is one that is much more holistic. And as easy as it is to say in this webcast with you or this podcast with you, I cannot tell you how deeply rooted this technical-centric paradigm is throughout the world. And to unroot it, we have to question our assumptions and then approach the game uh, with an open mind to entertain the possibility that we may be better as craftsmen and women um, if we're willing to entertain research, science, and couple that with the wisdom of the ages, of course. It's a real challenge because people are in their routine. And they've done it that way. And there are success stories from that paradigm. But it doesn't mean that that paradigm is the best way moving forward. I think it's really interesting because if you look at some of the top and most successful coaches in the world on a professional level, they do adapt. Um, I read a quote recently around the New Zealand All Blacks who said that year on year they'd look to adapt ready for a World Cup so no one would know where to hit them. You look at the New England Patriots with the NFL They'd go for running back heavy to having two tight ends, to having Randy Moss and change. And uh, you, you look at the way that basketball teams play, where they go f very heavy and on the threes, and all of a sudden you have two big centers. The, those teams that zig when everyone else zags are actually the ones that are more successful. To be s stuck in a particular way is when, obviously, you end up, end up getting caught with the crowd, essentially. Do you think that that comes down to maybe focusing on technical outcomes purely is easier and more tangible to monitor. So if I'm, uh, for example, if I'm working on longer range passing and I say to you, right, go out and hit 100 balls, today you could only get 20 through the gate that I've set up for you, but tomorrow you can do 21. So it's like, well, what I'm doing is working. Whereas what you're discussing around looking at character and spatial awareness and stuff, 
there's not necessarily a real tangible thing that I can say, well, the kid is definitely getting better in that area. And it's a real long-term journey for them. Yeah, I do. I think there's two things at play. When you mentioned, uh, and, and, and I think appropriately so, when you talk about the top coaches or these top athletes at the highest level of the game, I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? I mean, if they do not win, they are out of business or at their bottom of the table or they're relegated, right? So top coaches by necessity have to be on the front edge of the game. They have to innovate. They have to maximize the potential of their players and they have to do so to save their jobs, right? Or to save the club or keep it in the, in the appropriate league or to win a championship. When you distill that down to the youth level, not so much. What incentive is there really for an under 12 coach to do something differently or to re-examine those assumptions next year? An under 12 win or loss, you know, I'm not sure that's even relevant as a metric. So you have that, right? The top level teams, the top coaches that you mentioned um, need to be on the cutting edge to get their competitive advantage. So there is a divorce between that cutting edge top and the youth systems that are supposedly nurturing players into that system. The second part of your question, I think, is really appropriate. I think we create drills on many occasions that give us the illusion of learning. If we line up, Michael, you and I, and we put a ball in between us, or we add a third person and do a triangular passing drill, what's going to happen? We're going to get very good at that drill. We're going to improve. You're going. The coach will make a point about our body position or our structure or the weight of the pass, we will take that, we will improve that triangular or linear passing. We'll go back to the end of the line, we'll do it again. It'll give the coach the illusion of learning. But those same children, when they get into the context of a match, don't seem to transfer that sort of linear learning as well as we might suggest because it's not relative to the context in which those skills need to be delivered. Balls don't come in perfectly. Balls come from different angles. I'm under pressure, be it from other players or in relationship to my other teammates or in relationship to the time or the score or the fans or the parents. And so what we've known now for many years is that skill acquisition is really about skill acquisition applied. We want to apply the skills in the context in which they will be executed. And we want to do so in what we call a cognitively faithful way. And so if I stand back and forth with you, it will give us the illusion of learning until we're put into the test of the match. So if we can make training as cognitively faithful, as technically faithful, and as faithful to the character that is required of us, we're giving our young children, our young players, a better opportunity to mature, to take on the tasks that are actually required, not the way that we would like to deconstruct the game and make it simple for our benefit or to impress the parents with all sorts of equipment around the field and circuits that look really complex, but don't nurture the intellectual capacity, don't nurture the character that's required to compete and cooperate, and does not nurture the technical skills as they need to be applied. It's comfortable, but it isn't practical when we talk about child development or talent development. So if we're looking at this on a very simplistic level, so we're looking at trying to develop um, receiving skills, for example, um, with the, maybe your eight or nine-year-olds, what type of methodology would you use in order to support a player within that environment? Yeah, I think, I think what you want to do is, is create an environment where you're building up the cognitive complexity, right? What I mean by that is 
if you put players in an environment where there is an opponent and they have options to solve that opponent, that challenge, you're actually starting this cognitive development. We say at that level, is the child scanning his environment? Is he choosing the best options available to him to solve that defender as a challenge? And then does he execute that with precision? So we're talking about vision and precision coupled together or perception and action as it's often talked about in uh, PhD papers or from the University of Bath or other way, right? That perception action has to maintain that harmony, that matrimony for the child to develop those holistic skills to scan, choose, and do. So with young players, what's an alternative? If I place a player in a simple rondo, for example, as an activation exercise, as opposed to linear passing, I have now reconstructed all that's required of a child, which is to scan that environment, to choose the best option, and to execute that option in context. If I put them in a line, I've basically taken out the cognitive development so critical to their ability to perform. I do it with all good intentions, but I don't do it to the benefit of the child when it comes back to the need to be able to do that in context. And I think that's a major difference. Is your player thinking, executing, and competing and cooperating in every exercise? And if they are in your team environment, then you know you're actually nurturing the skills required, the cognition, the competence, and the character to compete without deconstructing it at the expense of other skills that need to be required. Okay, so, so looking at it from, um, if we're looking at technical as a separate entity, if you like, say, for example, you've got a young player who is is doing the preparatory work very well. So they're scanning their environment. They're making the decision on what they'd like to do. But technically, at the moment, they're struggling with the actual technique to execute the skill. So if I look at it at a very simplistic level, we're in a 2v1 situation, the defender's trying to show them outside and they're trying to curl the ball around the corner for their other player to come on and score. How would you go around developing a practice to support that player if they're having a lot of failure within it? Yeah, so what we what we noticed in the way that... So our, our, our Tovo trainings are basically constructed on, on rondos as activation, on position play exercises, which are not possession exercises, that's often confused. Position play exercises that maintain the structure that we will play uh, and then into the training games. And the training games, be it 1v1, 11v11, or the 2v1 you mentioned, are part of that training game portfolio. We can map, we can put in the constraints and set up goals or dribble goals to elicit the types of behaviors that we want. When we recognize that an individual child uh, has a difficulty or challenge or needs a tip, we can just pull that child out of that exercise and give them that instruction, right? So we can make it more explicit. But I've rarely found that all 18 children in a training session need to be lined up for one particular skill and then 18 more for another skill because it kills the game. It takes the joy out of it. And I don't even think it promotes learning. So I think we can look at individual and isolated skills as an opportunity as coaches to observe the need to pause then to explicitly perfect or to pose a question or to praise a child for success and nurture those skills as you would traditionally define them in technically proficient ways. So at our session, we do not take a team training environment 
to do 18 individual isolated skills. What we would do is recognize strengths and weaknesses and work with that child to overcome any technical deficiencies through explicit instruction or repetition or assigned uh, tasks so that they can learn to curl the ball or receive the ball or pass the ball or uh, you know do any number of skills that were required for them to be successful in context. We just don't believe in lining up at a team training environment where we're afforded 18 players to compete and cooperate and to challenge ourselves cognitively, that that is the best moment to isolate skills and line the kids up and then explicitly instruct something that in the future they will use. On the sense of motivation, when a child fails in the exercise you just mentioned, they are even more motivated to solve that challenge. So when you come in as a coach, this isn't a, hey, let's all bend the ball for three years and someday you'll use it. It's, did you notice how we couldn't solve that challenge? Let's think about ways technically that we may be able to add that to our arsenal skills to challenge that defender. In doing so, the motivation I've noticed through the years grows exponentially. Now it's a tool, a technical tool or technique that a child wants to solve a challenge as opposed to an arsenal of skills that may someday be good for them in the future. The motivation and the learning process is completely different, although the end result is you get a technically capable child with great vision to execute with precision. As I said, it's, a, it's, it's just a different paradigm. And what I found through research and through practice is children want solutions. And when they need them, they will put in the time and they will heed your observations and energy and tips much more readily than if you just tell them, hey, this will be good for you someday down the road. So everybody line up and let's do a passing drill. And I guess that's when, you know, the skill of the practitioner, of the coach coming in, giving each of the players maybe their individual tip and encouraging them to go away and work on it away from the session. So then all of a sudden you're engaging the kid at home because they're doing, you know, 20 minutes in the garden, half an hour with mum or dad or whatever that looks like they're actually practicing those skills that are relevant that we've used in the training session now in a, in a home setting with brother or sister or whoever it is. Yeah, I think, you know, and you have to keep in mind, you're also, I mean, I know you're working, you work at top level academies, right? Um, you're dealing with a different type of structure, your different type of um, training program and plan. So for example, um, you know, when, when Johan was working back at, at his home club at Ajax, we're obviously dealing with high caliber players with a professional agenda, right? And so when you get into those teenage years and you're nurturing the right back or the center back or the wing or your keeper, you can really start to look at the skill set an individual player has and then condition a functional training program for that player be it a fitness program, a speed program, be it a technical program, a tactical program, defensive program, video analysis, medical staff, three, three coaches. I mean, so that environment is not really realistic for your average coach, right? And in that, you'll see them use a lot of uh, extra sessions to work on these individual skills pertinent to their professional pathway. Most children 
show up to a field somewhere in England, somewhere in the United States, somewhere in New Zealand. They have a coach that pulls out the bag of balls and pennies and cones and finds a patch of grass or dirt or, <laughs> or cement and has to train a group of individuals. So we also want to make a distinction between, you know, these elite professional academies that have an amazing amount of resources and a unique agenda to develop professional players in a highly scrutinized environment. And Todd being the coach in California, that's trying to promote learning and joy for the under 12 boys so that they maximize their potential on and off the field. It's a different agenda. So often we get seduct seduced by taking a Pep Guardiola drill. We saw it on YouTube, which was really the physios drill to rehabilitate a player or to work on fitness. And then we think, okay, that'll be great for my under 12 team. I would suggest not YouTubing your way through under 12 trainings because that's not coherency consistency for a player in a learning program that pr will promote the maximum joy. That's Pep Guardiola and his very sophisticated staff exercising their task to make sure that every player is capable of playing as much as possible in a complex professional environment. And I think that's where also we get duped into thinking that the top level is the same as the youth level. And it's not. And we want to recognize what children are doing when they're in the process of maturation and what children are needing when they're maturing through those ages. Yeah, I think it's what you said there is really important. I, I'm a big believer in this. You can't just steal sessions from the top end because this might not be pertinent to your under six who's just started playing football. So maybe if they've been working on bicycle kicks, well, this little under six can't even kick the ball yet. So maybe doing that for him isn't isn't right. Um, in looking at, in terms of like a curriculum or syllabus that you guys have in place that you work with, you know, your, your selected coaches or clubs with, do you have anything particular in place and what does that actually look like? Yes. So we when we work with clubs and it was also the same, you know, working back at, uh, with IX at the highest level, this is consistent. We always start with envisioning the ideal and it, it's a process, right? Most coaches want the drills. And I cannot emphasize enough that that's the last place you start. The how to train is the last. The why is the most important. Why are we training this population of children in our charge, right? Who are they? Where are they from? What is the agenda? And at Tovo, we come back to one basic why. We want to promote learning and joy. Now, that sounds so simple. So, from that point, we start to examine our assumptions. Okay, if we want to promote learning and joy, is what we're doing currently the most effective way to promote learning and joy? For example, simple example, is winning and losing the best metric if my agenda is to promote learning and joy? And I think it's pretty obvious, Mike, you see that it's not, right? If I can only promote learning and joy by winning and being at the top of the table, that makes the other 15 teams in the league have a very fruitless season, which is, of course, ridiculous. I've coached winning teams. I've been on winning teams. I've been on losing teams. I've been on mid-table teams. You can promote learning and joy in losing and tying and winning. Of course, we go to win. But it's ridiculous to suggest that if I'm coaching under 12 girls here in, in Lake Tahoe, California, that the only metric of success is winning and losing. So we always start with how can we then promote learning and joy? What is the best program? 
curriculum methodology. Um, and we believe that the way that we promote learning and joy is to be very clear about what it means to be an ideal footballer in this case. So we take those arduous steps of defining for our constituency, what does it mean to be an ideal footballer? In the case of Tovo, it means to be intelligent. It means to be competent in the skills required to play the game. And it means to be a person of great character, respectful, ambitious, dedicated, reflective, resilient, these types of words. And we literally share that rubric, if you will, that expectation, that standard first. And now I haven't even talked about getting on the field yet. We did this at IX, and IX had its own rubric, right? You do this in any club. If you take the time as a camaraderie of coaches to do this club-wide, then you have clarity. And when you have clarity of expectations, the clarity of standards, only then, in my opinion, can you build a curriculum. Only then can you figure out with the three hours, six hours, nine hours, 15 hours a week I have with the child, what should I be doing to promote learning and joy, to maximize their potential toward that ideal? And this is where we come back to curriculum. If we value, I'm not saying you value or anybody your listeners value, but let's assume that we value, which we do, intelligence, the ability to scan your environment, make great selections and execute that then my training exercises put together in a coherent curriculum should nurture intelligence every moment I have a chance to work with a child. It should nurture the competencies to play the game that you mentioned. And it should nurture the character to compete and cooperate. So when you get down the road into curriculum, you're basically in triage. From the millions of drills you could choose or exercises you could choose for an hour and a half session, which do you choose? Well, at Tova, we choose the ones that nurture cognition, comps, and character, and the other 900,000 exercises available to me are just thrown in the bin or sent off to another club to use. So when you talk about curriculum, it's not about the exercises first. It's about why we're doing what we're doing for the constituents in our charge. What is the ideal player that we're trying to nurture? And what exercises that will form a curriculum over time best nurture those idealistic qualities. I found that 99% of the clubs never take the time to establish that ideal, to wrestle with those concepts and to put it literally onto the same page so that every coach in that staff or on that staff, excuse me, is working toward that ideal. And then by extension can build a consistent, coherent program from, as you mentioned, eight to 18. Most clubs worldwide do not have that in place. And that, for me, is a shame because without that thought process, without the details in place, without that curriculum well flushed through the system, we are not maximizing the potential of any child in our charge, be it at a top club or be it a humble club in a remote part of the world. So that work is arduous, it's difficult, it makes us challenge our craft but when we go through that process the children benefit and we ultimately reach our objective of promoting and learning and joy i i don't know if that makes sense but it's it's not the drill you start with no right? I, it, it does 100 percent. well the way i'm taking it anyway and correct me if i'm wrong is actually remove the technical or tactical so it's not a finishing the attack or playing out from the back it's potentially looking at the characteristics you want from your players so it may be, you know what, this two-week block, 
we want to work on resilience. So we're then going to choose maybe technical and tactical practices that are going to really challenge the players so that they have to become more resilient. The next two weeks may be, like you said, spatial awareness. So we're going to pick and choose practices that filter into that. And I, I think that's a really nice way of almost reversing reverse engineering a curriculum rather than looking at the technical and tactical outcomes actually what are our psychological personal social outcomes that we want and then we're going to fill in the blanks beneath that because actually there's so much resource in terms of technical and tactical stuff that we can use it's hard and i know i'm gonna it's gonna be probably a little disturbing saying this like there are certain structures that we don't use at Tovo. For example, it's so popular, as you mentioned, so popular divide. And so this is where we can have a discussion and and uh, about that. It's so popular through FAs or, or, or and federations worldwide that we make this sort of social, psychological, technical, tactical dissection. But if you think about what we're doing, we're re-engaging this Descartian model of deconstructionism, right? Which is if as a coach, I can deconstruct the parts and focus on the parts, then it works. So I want to, I want to suggest to you, Michael, we don't do that as much as that sounds logical. We just don't do that. I, I don't use that typical English FA. So what is it? Psychological, tactical to, because I don't believe that that's the way children are as beings or any of us are as beings. Like I'm not right now focusing on being resilient in this way. I'm focusing on taking on the challenges of my life in the environment in which I live. I've got six children. I've got to get some work done. We're having a great conversation. So I'm not like thinking right now after breakfast, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on being resilient. And then I'm going to do 20 minutes of building out of the back. And then I'm going to be... Tw- so I think that model, the paradigm I spoke about, that traditional model is a very Western model of thinking about life. Right. And I should say Western and not to include indigenous tribes with whom I've had the opportunity to work. Indigenous tribes do not make that dissection as much as really as we do out of Western Europe, which was let's break it into those parts. So I don't agree with the FA as much as you might suggest in breaking it into the psychological components. So when we train, we train principles of play. Now, and we have 14 to honor Johan and the vision. Uh, that he had about football. We have 14 principles of play. We'll select a particular principle of play. And then we know that the exercise that we choose, because it is not so deconstructed, divorce the mind from the body and the heart, cognition, constant character, the exercises are holistic. They always demand intellectual development, cognition, the competencies the fundamentals of angles, distance, timing, lines, situation, as well as passing, receiving, shooting, dribbling, and heading, and the character to compete and to cooperate, to demonstrate ambition and dedication and courage and resilience, right? So we don't divide our curriculum into one small subsection of that. What we do is to ensure that we maintain the integrity of cognition, comps, and character in every exercise. But to teach practically, we may uh, focus on preflect upon one principle of play, understanding that the social and psychological and everything else is actually holistically engaged in every moment with the exception of water break and maybe our mobility exercises with our physio. So I know when I go out to a Tovo training that the training will be mentally incredibly demanding. It will have to require resilience because every exercise 
is a competitive contextual exercise. So there's consequences for failure. And when you fail, you build resilience by overcoming that. I don't have to necessarily spend three weeks on resilience because every day is about resilience. Every day is about ambition and dedication and courage and reflection and respect. You win, you shake hands, you lose, you shake hands, you polish your boots, you pick up the equipment. So I don't isolate the character and I don't isolate the cognition and I don't isolate the competencies except to say that we may be working on something, as you mentioned, that is relevant to our capacity to compete this weekend and to try to put that in the forefront of a child's mind while every other element of cognition, competence and character maintains the integrity because of the exercises we choose. It's, it, it, it may sound crazy, I know, but I've just found that when we use that Descartian model and we dissect things, and we do it in schools as well, math, somehow social studies is divorced from English. In other words, as if the authors were, you know, taken out of the time historically from which they wrote or the societies in which they wrote. So I've always disagreed with the way that we educate children. When we dissect it too far and too much, we do them in a service because I don't think then they see the connections that we would want them to see. And in football, when we dissect and we say, we're going to do overlaps out of the, I don't know, quadrant number 64 to get into a certain area, I just don't think it works. I think it looks good at coaching conferences. It probably looks good in a thesis statement. But when we talk about promoting and learning and joy, promoting and learning and joy, that's not the way children learn. They don't learn in thirds. They don't learn in lanes. They don't learn in quadrants. I saw one that was 64 quadrants on a field. I don't know who invented that, um, but that's not really the way they learn. What we want to do is build a player's capacity to find and exploit space in context. Now, if that's a center back, fantastic. If that's a central sitting midfielder, fantastic. If that's Raheem Sterling you know, flying down the wing, perfect. Um, but if we nurture a player that with confidence can find and exploit space in the face of an adversary with the character that we've spoken about, I think they're well prepared to make the next level, uh, well prepared to send them on in the United States to college or make the next step at Southampton. I've never met a coach that says, please, whatever you do, don't give me an intelligent, competent player of great character because I don't know what to do with them. If you have a player of great cognition, competence, and character that's been nurtured in those skills since seven years old, trust me, somebody at the next level is looking for a player of great cognition, competence, and character, player that can find and exploit space under pressure, regardless of where you put them tactically against a particular opponent in a weekend match. I think we spend too much time isolating those skills and not thinking about the holistic a development of a child that will build their capacity to take on any challenge. And then I haven't even talked about yet about what that means for a player off the field when they go to find and exploit the opportunities that they have beyond the pitch or court or pool. Um, and, and, and it really requires a paradigm shift first, and then we can get into the curricular details. Listen, we are... Well, we are at the time that we set here, so I'm going to uh, ask you one more question. But I think from my perspective, I'd love to do a little bit more digging on, on all the things you're saying there. Because I think right, we have a couple more minutes. Let's go. Go for well, it. Well, no, not in terms of now, but after this, I'd love to have a bit more information. Because I think the what you're saying regarding the challenging, the westernized, broken down side of all of it and the tech tax psych and 
that is fascinating. So I'll definitely be reaching out to you again to look at some of this stuff. So the last question that I, I ask, I ask everyone, and I'm going to say don't go for your immediate first choice here because I think everyone will know who this will be. But who's the most impressive um, individual you've worked with or against and why? And I guess this could be player or coach, something that they've really challenged you or made you improve within within this industry. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, so 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 the question leads me within the industry, right? So of course, you know, you know, having the opportunity to work with Johan Cruyff within this industry, but it's not for the reasons that people think. Um, it's not. I'm, I'm. I mean, it's not that I'm not impressed by football people within the industry. It's just that. Because I understand that industry more, um, I'm not as challenged by the, that as I am for people outside the industry. I, it sounds strange to say that, but I really take a look historically at people of great characters, say like a Nelson Mandela, and you think, how did this gentleman find solutions? in his environment to succeed against all odds. For me, I live here, we're not far from Silicon Valley, and I'm amazed by the, by the people out of the tech industry that continually must innovate, have to come up with creative solutions to challenges that we may not even know can be solved. Um, and so you look at a Steve Jobs or somebody like that or anybody that's actually less famous that is working in the industry. I have friends here just down the road. I had a conversation the other day over over a burger by the Truckee River. And I'm fascinated by my friend's mind as how he's thinking three steps ahead. In other words, they're questioning the very assumptions upon which I base my life and then thinking of solutions of challenges that I may not even know <laughs> that are coming these types of people outside of football industry, I think, push the envelope of innovation. And I'm always fascinated by people, be they famous people, uh, you know, the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs in technology or the Johan Cruyffs or the Pep Guardiola's in football. Um, I'm always fascinated by just good, humble, common people, if you will, with less famous names that shift their thinking that question the assumptions upon which they may even built their past or their current success and start to question those assumptions for the benefit of other people. Maria Montessori comes to mind in education. These types of people, John Dewey in education, um, these types of people who said, I understand how the world works now. I understand the model that everybody is following today. But can we go back to the original source of what our intentions were? to maximize human potential? And then can I, in my industry, think of ways, innovative ways, to take on those challenges within the environment that I work? The Kreifs, the Guardiolas in football, the, the Deweys and, and the Montessoris in education, the Jobs and the Gates in technology, the Mandelas and the Gandhis of political and idealistic aspirations. Those people fascinate me. And so I try not to stay just within the football industry to hone my craft. No, I not think probably that's... a typical answer, but I no, had to go it's, there. I'm, it's a good I'm one. Sorry. As I said, the reason I ask this question more often than not is to look at the reason why 
So I'm le- I'm less worried about the person that you choose and more why you choose them. And it sounds like me there, you like people that challenge conventional wisdom, that don't just accept an answer because that's what they've been given, but actually go, well, no, is there a different way to solve this problem? Or is there a way we could be more effective, more efficient? It, it, I correct, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like the type of person you like is someone who can challenge conventional thinking and improve everyone around them yeah most people you know if if and i've done this exercise with players and stuff but but most people if 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 you say for example um oh do we believe that society has an opportunity and obligation to maximize the potential of our youth most people are going to say yes right so it's it's a, it's a challenge worth solving um but most people, when they start to think about how, will recreate the same structure from which they've departed. The people I mentioned didn't do that. They went back to the original source. For example, Montessori. My role is to maximize the potential of children in my charge. Do I have to follow strict policy and educational guidelines of my era? No. I can rethink and redesign talent development. Bill Gates and others, do I have to follow the current paradigm about the way that we interact with the technology of that time? No, I can rethink and reimagine what might be, and then I can get to the drills of executing that vision. Johann Cruyff, football was played a particular way up until 1970, and it was played pretty consistently that way throughout the cultures around the world. When the 1970s arrived, and Johann Cruyff as the poster child of Renus Mitchell's vision and others, came to the world of football, that Dutch team revolutionized football. Not because they were better at the way that it was played, because they changed the way that it was played. They reimagined football. And from that date forward, we've had the luxury of studying them and understanding them. But we also have the burden now to reimagine talent development in a way that was not 1970 or 80 or 90, as comfortable as that may be. We respect the wisdom of our elders, but we're reimagining with what we know today, a better opportunity for children. Those people are fascinating to me, and they don't just come from football. They come from the grocery store to the upper echelons of politics and science and history and education. They're there and they may be famous, they may not. I happen to have a few friends of mine that force me to rethink everything and they have no idea which way the football goes, (laughs) right? And those people to me are the most fascinating. That's what I think you're doing on this podcast. So I'll conclude there. I mean, to be invited on is, is an honor. And I know that you're exploring these questions with people well beyond my capacity and well beyond my industry. What better way to take best practices of people that care about our children, maximizing their potential to the fullest and are promoting learning, enjoying and innovative learning, enjoying innovative ways. I'll take note. And I think that many of these ideas from some of the leaders you're speaking to are applicable to my ability to raise my own children and certainly the children in my charge at Tovo Academy Barcelona. So. I appreciate the opportunity, Michael. We'll have follow-up conversations. We'll come back to this because we just touched the surface. But I, I appreciate your listeners and appreciate you taking the time to connect with me. 
there's some really great conversation as you said there there's loads of bits that we haven't touched on and there'll be loads of bits that when i go away and do more digging that will pique my interest so um i'll let you go there but really appreciate your time and we'll catch up again soon thanks for the opportunity michael we'll talk soon Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.